I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you remember Don Cowie, um, my great friend and mentor in ministry when I arrived here at ECC. Uh, Don had a number of stories that he liked to tell, some of which were his favorites. And uh, one story he liked to tell 
which was one of his favorites, was about how Christians disagree and argue about things because we're really good at that. Um, the story goes like this. There was a man who was on a bridge, and he was about ready to jump off the bridge to his death. And a, a good Samaritan passing by recognized his plight and shouted out to him, Don't do it! There's real meaning in life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or some other phrase. And he stopped and he shouted to him. He said, I got a question for you, like a good negotiator. He said, are you a Christian or a Jew? And the guy shouted back, I'm a Christian. And the good Samaritan said, oh, wonderful, so am I. He said, are you a Catholic or Protestant? The guy shouted, I'm a Protestant. He said, great, so am I. Just hang in there. You, you can see this guy inching closer and closer, right, to the individuals who, who's about to jump. He asked him concerning his denomination, are you Northern or Southern Baptist? The guy said, I'm a Northern Baptist. And, and the Good Samaritan said, that's great, so am I. And then he said, are you a conservative, fundamentalist, or a liberal? And he said, I'm, I'm a conservative, fundamentalist. He said, great, so am I. Hang in there. And he got closer. And he said, are you from the Great Lake Region Council 1879 or Great Lake Region Council 1912? And the guy said, Great Lake Region Council 1912. And he pushed him over and screamed, die, heretic. It's like, uh, uh, <laughs> the point is, we really get all worked up about stuff, don't we? Um, and the bigger point is, this is a difficult passage. How would you like to be preaching on it? Um, so, let's not push anybody over the ledge after the sermon's over, okay? <laughs> I can still be friends with you and you with me, and you can be friends with the people you sit next to because this is a difficult passage. As a matter of fact, it's not just chapter 9 that's sort of oddly difficult. It's chapter 9, 10, and 11. Because if you're reading Romans like a book, which most of us don't straight through, what you'll notice is when you get to 9, 10, and 11, you feel like you've entered a different world. And if you're honest with yourself, you may say, just reading it straight through, you may say, wait a minute, what, 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 what? What are you going there for, Paul? What's the point of this? Some have suggested it's just sort of a parenthesis that doesn't have anything to do with the larger content of the book. I think that's not a good argument. I think it's an important part of the overall story. However, if we're to understand anything, we constantly say this, don't we? Ad infinitum, ad nauseum. It's important to consider the context. And the context, of course, is the larger context of the book of Romans, as we've been arguing, concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ for all people. And Paul is telling us how that has happened and how it will happen. Furthermore, we know, contextually, that the people who are reading this letter for the first time are both Jews and Gentiles. Believers who are Jews and believers who are Gentiles. Now consider this. The Jewish believers are increasingly, it's an oxymoron, increasingly a minority. The further we go, the fewer of them there are. In terms of comparative analysis, the Gentile church is growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the Jewish believer is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. 
We see this in the life of Paul. He immediately goes into a new community and argues that Jesus is the Christ in the synagogue. And it seems that before it's all over, he's got a household of Gentiles that he's speaking to. The gospel is exploding on the human horizon through exponential growth among the Gentiles. So, here's a possibility for the context. The context might be littered with jealousy among those who said, wait a minute, we're the chosen people. What's all this talk about the gospel expanding to the nations? And there may have been some jealousy among them, this increasingly smaller minority of Jewish believers. Perhaps, among other reasons, that's why Paul uses passages like from Hosea and Isaiah to reinforce the fact that God's plan all along was for the nations of the world, not just for the Jewish people. The second thing in this context may be, and I say maybe, it may be that the Jewish minority is rightly jealous, if that's possible, because the increasing Gentile majority is rather arrogant. We've got it now. Our church is growing. We're accepting this gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ, and things are happening among us. It's possible that Paul speaks into that kind of tension. What we know for sure is that in every community he spoke into, there were varying opinions and there were tensions. And we also know for sure that no matter which side of the issue you're on, whether Jewish or Gentile, both of them need to hear the same message. That the gospel says Paul, is not about them. It's actually about God. So let's consider a few things uh, in this passage. First, God's plan for his chosen people. It's clear, Paul articulates, that God chose the people of Israel as a special nation to declare his world, his, his uh, gospel his good news to the world begins with Abraham and what we see says Paul basically is the nation of Israel has all the inheritance and yet failed to see the Messiah and it appears for that reason that the project is a failure right says Paul it looks like God gave Israel this wonderful promise and then when the wonderful promise came they actually rejected the promise it looks like the plan has fallen apart but no says Paul the plan hasn't fallen apart as a matter of fact, he uses illustrations about why he believes the plan hasn't fallen apart. He says this, in Israel's history, you could see failure, but you could also see something else. You could see the plan of God that goes absolutely unthwarted through human activity. Even though humans are silly and sinful, God continues to advance his plan. He uses a couple of illustrations. One illustration is Ishmael and Isaac. Anyone who's reading this letter would know that story. It's Abraham and Sarah who are about to have a child, and they think God's going to give it to them, and they continue to wait, and the child never comes. And finally, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, Look, this is what's supposed to happen. I have an idea. Let's do it a different way. Here's my handmaiden, Hagar. 
go to her and have a child with her and then the promise will come through our child because I'm too old. And you know the story. Of course, Hagar does bear a child named Ishmael and God comes to Abraham and says, that was a wrong turn in the road. <laughs> I'm still going to bless you and I'm going to bring a child out of Sarah's womb to bless the world. In other words, it seems, at least according to my interpretation, Paul is saying, look how God created a plan that was unthwarted by human ingenuity and contrivance. Right? It didn't make any difference. So that Abraham and Sarah came up with another plan. God said, my plan will prevail, and I will bring a child into your life when you're 190 years old. Second illustration he uses is Isaac and Jacob, excuse me, he uses Jacob and Esau. Of course, the children of Isaac. Now Jacob, of course, is a rascal, a scoundrel. He's the kind of person that no one would select for a mission that had anything to do with righteousness. And he's the younger. And he shouldn't have been selected as the one to carry this, this good news in his loins. And Paul says, but that's not what happened, you see. He was chosen anyway. He was chosen in spite of the fact that he wasn't righteous and good. He was chosen in spite of the fact that he was not upstanding according to our standards. But Paul could have said, and I think he essentially is saying, it wouldn't have made any difference if it was Esau or Jacob. Because neither one of them are worthy of my grace. Neither one of them are great carriers of this good news. God's plan will not be thwarted either by human contrivance or will it not be thwarted by human sinfulness. If it could be thwarted by human sinfulness, the project would be over. So says Paul, God's plan will not be thwarted. God is the one who chooses and decides who will be chosen. Now in that same frame of reference, let's consider a couple difficult statements in this passage. He says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. He's saying that out of the womb. I chose Jacob, I rejected Esau. So that's not the language. In other words, Paul is saying, apparently, that Esau had no chance. And that Jacob was loved by God and Esau was hated by God. And that appears to be what Paul is saying if you take it in a literalistic way. But if you understand not only this context, but the context of multiple other passages in the Old and in the New Testament, you realize that the authors of the scripture frequently use exaggerated language to make a very important point. You'll remember, right, when Jesus was speaking concerning discipleship and the importance of following him in Luke chapter 14, he said, unless you hate your brother and your mother and your father and every other living creature on the earth, unless you hate them, you can't be my disciple. Seems rather odd because Jesus always told us to love not only those who were close to us, but those who were strangers and even those who were enemies. So surely Jesus is not saying we have to hate our mother in order to love God. 
As a matter of fact, a sort of corrective is given to us in Matthew's gospel, where Matthew quotes Jesus as saying essentially the same thing in terms of a message, but he modifies the way it's said. And the words in Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, go like this, if you love others more than me, you're not worthy of me. In other words, in effect, Matthew is saying what Luke meant and what Jesus meant is this, Jesus has to be first. He didn't mean literally hate everybody else in order to love him. He meant, I must come first if you're going to be my disciple. In much the same way, I think we ought to read Jacob and Esau. But there's another part of this Jacob and Esau difficulty. Actually, the address to Jacob and Esau, or the address about Jacob and Esau, is really not about individuals at all. It is, but it isn't. In other words, Paul is saying this is about a nation. This is about a people group. God selected Jacob, that is, the nation of Israel. He did not select Esau, the nation of the Edomites. He chose this group of people and not that group of people to accomplish his purposes in the world. So as a matter of fact, it's really not about Jacob or Esau at all. The larger picture is about the way God selects people groups to accomplish his will and the way in which his will will, be not, will not be thwarted. He goes on to say something else that sounds very difficult. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I decide. What's the opposite of mercy? Condemnation. Punishment. Paul says, God says to us, I'm going to have mercy on who I'm going to have mercy. It sounds so arbitrary, doesn't it? So uncompassionate. However, we have to retool our thinking when we hear this phrase to remind ourselves of something we already know. You already know this. None of us deserve mercy. All of us are inclined to walk away from God and say, I don't need you. Until we're in crisis. We don't deserve mercy. But God gives us mercy. It's not as though the lack of mercy distributed by God is a lack of a gift that has preceded that act of mercy. Over and over again, God extends his grace to us. We know that. I think to all of us. But to some, mercy. The mercy of salvation and redemption is fully realized in their life. Because God does that for people. And for others, he does not. This, I don't believe, um, is a description of God being proactive in damnation. Some see this as just that. Not only is it God who gives mercy... It's God who decides who will be condemned through and before all eternity. He goes on to, oh, I, I should say this, that what I'll call extreme position, or some people call it double predestination, that what I believe to be an extreme position just doesn't seem to jive with the rest of Scripture. 
And we need to go no farther than Romans chapter 1, right? In Romans chapter 1, what we read and what we learned, if you remember, this was weeks ago, is that the same grace of God is dispensed to all of humanity. Everyone is without excuse. Why? Because they've been given enough knowledge concerning God to move towards God. In other words, all have been dispensed with some measure of grace. And it's the decision of all to make a determination as to whether or not they're going to move in the direction of that grace. So I don't think this is a statement concerning the proactive damnation of God from all eternity. It's just a reminder that the mercy of God comes to some and to others it does not. And we play a role. Then he goes on to make this statement, which is also difficult. What if God he says, crafted with great care the objects of his wrath. What if God shaped out of the dust of the earth, or what if God shaped in your mother's womb an innocent, beautiful baby for the purpose of damning it? Did I make it extreme enough? <laughs> that seems to be what Paul is saying. What if he did that, says Paul? And then basically he answers this. If he did, we really would have nothing to say. Why? Because he's the potter and we're the clay. And God can do as God chooses. Now, again, my perspective is that there's a gnawing silence that informs this text. Paul did not say, God carefully crafts objects of beautiful delight for the purpose of damning them. He didn't actually say that. He, in effect, said, what if God did that? Could we judge him? And the answer is no. Again, he's making a statement concerning the absolute, complete authority and sovereignty of God. As a matter of fact, he's probably quoting Isaiah when he says this. Because Isaiah used the same language about potter and clay. We have no right to say to God, you've got to do it this way. We have no right to say to God, you must give me mercy. We have no right to say to God, you cannot condemn me. We don't have the right to say that because he's absolutely, completely, and fully sovereign. That's what happened to Job when he got to the end of all his inquiry concerning pain and suffering in the world. He said, I want to speak to God. Come out here, God, to the human court of affairs and let me address you, man, oh, man, oh. And God comes out in thunder and lightning and Job just shrinks down. In effect, God says, go ahead and speak, Job. See if you can utter a word. And Job's in silence. That's the picture that God is painting. Because it's true. <laughs> Unless we create another God other than the God of Scripture, unless we create another God other than a high notion of deity, even if it's not the Christian God, 
if we create another God that does not have the sovereignty and the authority to do whatever he wills, we have no God. We've got something other than a God. That's God, says Paul. He has the authority and the freedom to execute his will, period. And in reality, we can't talk back. But here's the incredible beauty of that very reality. The God who has that sovereign authority to do whatever he wishes is the same God who entered our human condition in the person of Jesus Christ and died on our behalf. That's the answer that rings clear about the gospel. Yes, he's sovereign, but he loves you. So what's the conclusion of the matter? Um, first thing is, I think we need to remind ourselves that the story that Paul's telling is primarily about a people group, not about us as individuals, okay? It's really not. Um, the us about individuals line is secondary to the overall story of God's people. And uh, folks, you, you know that I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm I'm an evangelical at heart, right? But you also know I'm a self-critical evangelical, okay? So let me apply some self-criticism to our evangelicalism for a moment. And our Westernism, our Americanism for that matter, but let's just focus on evangelicalism. Here's the reality. Our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness. What is our greatest strength? Our greatest strength is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, calling people to make a decision for Christ and following Christ as Lord unequivocally wherever you are as an individual. Listening to the Spirit, studying the Word, trying to discern the nature of God Himself so that you can understand how to follow Him more fully. That's, that's the great part of evangelicalism. We as evangelicals don't say you're a Christian just because you were born that way. We say you're a Christian because you choose God and you relinquish all your, your entire being to Jesus Christ as Lord. And I love that about us, okay? But our greatest strength, no matter whether it's individual or corporate, can also be our greatest weakness. You know that. So what is the greatest weakness of that greatest strength? The greatest weakness of that greatest strength is to see every passage in Scripture interpretively as about us. To fixate on Romans 9 or Ephesians 1 and start to believe that Paul was writing about individuals and individuals only because everything is about me and God. No, it's not. Newsflash, God doesn't think you're that important. God thinks the whole world is that important. And you happen to be part of it. So we take these passages and we turn them inward, right? Oh, this one's about me. Am I saved or am I lost? Am I chosen or am I not? Is he or she chosen or is he or she not? Paul was not primarily talking about that. 
He was talking about the activity of the salvation of God in the world coming through the Jews and now to the Gentiles for everyone. Okay. Why is that our greatest weakness? It's not just because we're evangelicals. It's because we're Western Christians, because we're Americans, and individualism is, is primary. We somehow believe, we have fooled ourselves into thinking that real individual meaning identity right can be found somehow in our own individual decisions and we are sort of the captains of our own soul and we find meaning but folks you know the reality is that's not true you know it's not true because you found meaning when if you have you fell in love with another then you found real meaning and then you entered another level of meaning, if you did, when you had children. And you realized that that little brood that you call your children was more important to you than your life. You never realized that quite as much until you had those children. And then you begin to realize that you wanted those children not to be all about themselves. So you direct those children, and I hope by example, to serve others. And you want to direct those children to realize that life is not all about them. It's about their creator, God. And you lift them to God in prayer. You dedicate them. You baptize them. Because you want them to step beyond themselves in order to find themselves. That's the reality of true identity. We find it somewhere else. When we enter a cause, when we find it through service, when we're a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. It's a pretty intense sermon, isn't it? Let me lighten it up. I'll give you an illustration. You get it? I'm a Cubs fan. <laughs> and I cannot come close to throwing the ball like Jake Arietta, or last night, Kyle Hendricks, who got us into the World Series. I won't go on. <laughs> and I cannot swing the bat like Anthony Rizzo. And I cannot manage the players like Joe Madden. But when I watched that game last night, my daughter is uh, at work, but she's on her iPhone so that we can listen to it and scream together. Get this, my son is in England, and the game started at 1.30 in the morning or something like that, some god-awful time for him. And I've got uh, my wife's iPad in front of the TV, and he's FaceTiming and watching the game on my TV as we scream and yell together. And all three of us, really, it's kind of weird, but we felt like we were a part of it. It had nothing to do with us, right? <laughs> They were going to win or they weren't. I don't know if it's predestined, I hope it is, that we beat the Indians. But I really had no contribution at all. But I found meaning in it. I really did. It's kind of, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but I found meaning in it. Hey, I'm not the only one. You're giggling because some of you are uncomfortable. Because you find meaning in it too. Because Nate Peterman and I texted through the whole game finding meaning in the victory of the Cubs. 
you, you know, that's a silly point, right? It's a silly way to illustrate what I'm talking about. But the reality is, we find our deepest meaning when we step into the trajectory of something that's more powerful and greater and more wonderful than ourselves. So instead of focusing on Romans chapter 9 and asking the introspective question all the time, why don't we focus on Romans chapter 9 and Ephesians chapter 1 and glorify the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord who's invited us to be a part of a thing that's greater than life itself. It's actually eternal. That's the reality of this thing that you might call predestination. You've been chosen and invited to be a part of this. You don't deserve it. Nobody does. It's grace. So first of all, um, it's primary to understand our identity through something else. A second, I want to say about this passage, and I've already said it, but I want to say it again. I don't think this is a passage about double predestination. Uh, that God chose from all eternity to damn some. And why, why do I not think that is consistent? Because it just doesn't jive with the rest of Scripture in my mind. Um, scripture passages like God wills that all will come to repentance. Or even in Romans chapter 1, all are without excuse. You have a part to play in this. You choose or you don't. Or passages that ring like this, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The notion of double predestination just seems to be in conflict with the rest of Scripture. That doesn't believe, mean I don't believe in predestination, I do. The third point um, is in order for us to do a good job of understanding this and applying it, we must exercise humility. You know the difference between a pure contradiction and an antinomy, right? A pure contradiction is, is an absolute contradiction. An antinomy is, is sort of a paradox. It's like two things that seem to be opposite, but they're not. I, I think that the notion of free will and God's sovereignty is like that. It's an antinomy. And we see them in all kinds of parts of life, right? Well, we actually see it doctrinally in the, in the dual natures of Jesus Christ. That's an antinomy. It's hard to figure out, but I embrace it. We see it in the paradoxical notion of God in the Trinity. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. That's an antinomy. I, I embrace it. I don't completely understand it. We even see it in science. And, and those who are scientists could just wax eloquent on this. But the simplest way to understand it for me is just to remember we still can't figure out whether or not light is a particle or a wave. And so we call it both. It goes on and on and on. We live with these antinomies all around us, right? The difference is when we come to this subject matter, this antinomy, it requires another level of humility. Not just that I don't understand, but that I don't understand everything, but I understand enough to fall down in worship. Humility is essential. If you ever think you've got this figured out, well, you're wrong. As a matter of fact, the end of chapter 9, it's not chapter 9. The end of chapter 9 is the end of chapter 11. 
Consider the antinomy I've just mentioned. And then hear these words of Paul. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is judgment and his path beyond tracing out. Or who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's humility in the face of mystery. Last thing I want to say is this whole story is about grace from start to finish. It's the grace of God that he has a plan to redeem in spite of sin. It's the grace of God that he chose us to be holy even though we're not. It's the grace of God that he's invited us to participate in something, the redemption of all things. That's part of what we do in stepping into the gospel story. We participate in the redemption of all things. And it's grace that at the end of this story, God makes everything new. What sin destroyed grace restores that's the point of this passage may God be praised let's pray Lord we give you thanks for your divine mysteries and one of those mysteries is grace today we look into this glass darkly as Paul would put it later in 1 Corinthians and we're just seeing through it like it's misty and clouded and we don't fully understand it but we know you can be trusted as a loving good God who demonstrated your love and grace in the coming of Jesus Christ your son our Lord so we pray you will help us to stay focused on our job to be ambassadors of this good news and when the mysteries of the faith seem to tangle us like a web that we'll be released from the web of worry by falling face down in worship. And for that, we will give you praise. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.